Franchise Simply, absolutely delighted to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Increasingly popular franchise radio show, our podcasts are now rating continually highly, actually internationally, which is really great. So I'm talking to you from here on the Gold Coast, and I'm joined today by Helen Kay from Rise Legal. She's a, a legal practitioner in this area, and I'll run into that in a moment. But our title today is called Critical Legal Matters When Franchising Your Business. So we're aiming at people who are considering franchising. Do I franchise? Do I license? You know, what do I need to do? I might just say, before we get the ball rolling, uh, you might like to turn your phones off, save distracting yourselves, but make sure you have a notebook nearby because there will be some interesting points to make. I think some really valuable insights. So uh, I hope to bring you those. From that point of view, really, I suppose there's nothing else. If you've got any questions, do get back to me. Drop me an email or something. Always happy to expand beyond any points we discuss, and I'm sure Helen would be the same. So Helen Kay, by the way, if you don't know of her, is a fairly well-known authority in the franchise legal landscape. She's got a track record spanning over 20 years. She's worked with us and our customers for many years now. She's, I would describe her in glowing terms as the visionary founder of Rise Legal. She's got a lovely practice. She's got a niche there as a franchise law specialist. She has expertise, no question about it, in strategic commercial contract solutions. Looking at all the dynamics you get in franchising and in business, she's ascended, I would say, to the heights of legal leadership. She's been She's been in uh, high-ranking positions in multiple law firms um, of significant size, where she's continually delivered top-tier commercial legal advice. Her commitment goes beyond just the professional service to actually being an active mentor to up-and-coming talent in the legal field, which is very commendable. She has really, I suppose, why I like working with Helen and why I'm talking today is that she's got a potent blend of hands-on experience and leadership in this area, and she's down-to-earth and straightforward, Helen, <laughs> and she's stands for us as an invaluable source in that vast consuming sea of commercial law. (laughs) But before we start, Helen has asked me, quite understandably, before I begin to make a quick disclaimer. On her behalf, I say as a lawyer, Helen's role is to provide general information about the legal aspects of franchising. Please remember this podcast should not be taken as legal advice applicable to any specific situation or individual. Legal situations can vary greatly. And what's discussed today may not fit everyone's unique circumstances. So if you're considering setting up a franchise or dealing with any legal issues, I'd certainly always recommend you seek independent legal advice. And if you've been to one of my weekend workshops or other events, you'll know that I repeat very much a similar sort of uh, recital, if you like. So let's get jumped into our conversation. And at long last, I can introduce you to Helen. Helen, hello. How are you? I'm very well, Brian. How are you doing? Yeah, excellent. Great. Thanks. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's all right. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it, Brian? We've been talking about it for a while. Yeah, in a busy world, it's not always easy. So I've got a few questions here, but... Helen, you're happy to go off down any rabbit holes you want. And, you know, I'm sure we'll enjoy our chat. So my first question is, in the thrilling world of franchising, how can an entrepreneur strategically structure their business to maximize the potential and set the stage for being, let's call it a a roaring success? (laughs) Great question, Brian. Okay, so first of all, um, on that, when when we first start working with um, someone in the franchise space, as you know, 
Um, one of the first things we do is get them on what we call a legal strategy session. And that's the session where we actually run through all the elements that, um, you know, an entrepreneur who's thinking about going national, growing their brand, you know, embracing the franchise world, all the things that they need to be thinking about. So really, you know, it's a, it's a full whistle stop and roadmap of what they need to be doing. And in answer to your question with the structure, the first thing we actually look at in those legal strategy sessions is business structuring. Um, and there is a reason for that. Everything needs to happen at the beginning. And the structure is the foundation upon which these business people will build their franchise. It is actually a new business. So if you've been running a business for many, many years under a company or multiple companies and trust structures and all that, you know, all set up very cleverly for tax minimization, we need to do a new structure because this is a new business. You are putting on a new hat as a franchisor and we need to set up a new business structure. Now, what we normally do, um, we obviously look at the way they're structured already and see what we can utilize from that. But generally speaking, um, the structure is a holding company and that holding company will hold shares in multiple other franchising companies, such as uh, a separate IP entity, and that's holding the intellectual property of the franchisor. And that actually will license the use of that intellectual property then to a separate franchising company. So this is going to be the franchisor. This is sort of the main operating entity, uh, as it were, in the franchise system. Now, you may maintain some of your existing companies. Again, we need to look at your structure. And it could be that you maybe open some more corporate stores, etc., and have those under separate operating companies and if you do leasing it might be that we need some leasing companies to really silo away the leases but it's really clear to have a very very unique and new uh, clean essentially we call it an SPV a a special performance vehicle or single performance vehicle whichever one you want to use and the reason we do that is because you've already been operating under your existing company So the existing company already has assets, some wealth, some goodwill, and also may have some cracks in it. We don't know if someone's ready to sue that already operating company, whether there's a disgruntled employee or client or supplier or somebody. So we start afresh. It's a clean slate. So the reason we bother so much about structure and we don't just set up one company for everything is for asset protection. We separate out the key assets, the trademarks and intellectual property into separate operational and franchising arms. And that reduces the risk of losing valuable assets in any litigation. So really, really in answer to your question, Brian, um, a strategic structure will um, set you up for success because it will have the right protections. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. That's very, very broad range. So essentially, then what you're going to do is get a clean sheet of paper Take all the knowledge and experience you've got, what you've accumulated, and draw up a fresh, a fresh plan. You're starting from afresh, literally, with your franchise business. Mm. Absolutely. It's, it's a new business. It really is a new business. Even if you're using that goodwill and, and know-how, et cetera, that you've, you've already built up over the years, it, this is a new business. Like I say, you're putting a new hat on as franchisor. Everything should be fresh and new. Okay, that brings me to one area there. You mentioned intellectual property or IP. So maybe that's an area we can dig into a little bit now. So could you share some light to our listeners on what I think you often call the hidden shield that you need to protect the IP and the branding, et cetera? What what are the steps that people need to take with their business? And I guess this is the same wherever you are in the world. The principle is really much the same. Trademarking is universal, isn't it? 
It is absolutely, yeah. And this is um so bit on that um you know legal strategy session that we do, and I know in your workshops as well that one of the things that gets covered quite early on in the piece is the brand itself. So whilst we're not branding experts, you know, we don't design the brands or anything, we do look at that legal protection shield that you mentioned. So and the reason we do that is because um the brand is so essential to the whole franchise system. In fact, um, without boring you with legals, but the Franchising Code of Conduct, which is the Australian legislation that sits above all of this for the Australian listeners, actually um, carves out the brand as being a key element of an actual franchise agreement. So a franchise agreement is basically an agreement with a franchisee to give them the right to carry on the business under a system or marketing plan determined by the franchisor, under which the operation of the business will be substantially or materially associated with a trademark, marketing or commercial symbol. So really the brand sits at the centre of it all. If we had a whiteboard and you and I were scribbling away, the brand is in the middle of all of this. The structure that we just talked about is at the bottom and around the sides, but the brand is in the middle and it has to form the basis of everything we're doing. So what you need is an actual robust brand, and that's the key to the success of the franchise system. We often get people come to us who have been operating very successfully, but using what we would call um, a sort of a mediocre brand. So something that's descriptive or geographical. I always give the example like Gold Coast Gardener. You know, that's great for someone finding you on Google, but it is not good for protecting your IP. It has to be something unique and something that, you know, no one else is using. So one of the first things we do after that legal strategy session is to is to conduct like a brand check with our clients. So if they haven't got um, a franchise brand or anything yet, if they, you know, for example, they, they're going to do this fresh and we're not utilizing an existing brand, we look at a few things like, is the business name available? Is it actually available to register an asset? Because you have to own the business name otherwise you get penalties for trading without owning the business name and then obviously is the domain name available so you need to check that the website address you want is available and then also social media handles which are a really important tool for businesses you should check to see if you can secure the same social media handles across all platforms so that the clients can easily find you so again all those steps you know business name not available domain name not available social media handle not available this is the right point with that blank canvas this is the right point to rethink our branding because you know that those are going to be real keys to the success of this system and then we get into the actual legal side is the business name then going to be able to be trademarked so a lot of people don't realize that owning a business name does not give you the intellectual property protection where you can prevent other people using the name. So whilst you can't register an identical name with ASIC, you can actually register a name that is a character difference. So it could be so similar that it's it's just remarkably the same. And a registered trademark, as you know, Brian, is the only way that you're able to stop someone else using an identical or deceptively similar name within your registered class. Now, it can be quite difficult to successfully register a trademark with um, IP Australia because there's actually 45 different classes that you can register your trademark in. And depending on the nature of your business, the kind of goods or services you provide, your business may fall under one class or numerous classes. And you're only protected in the classes that you register in. So it is important to get this right. Now, you did mention before, you know, we've got some international listeners. There are international trademarks under the Madrid Protocol. So if the same the same classes apply and the same the same principles, like you said, specifically talking about Australian trademarks. But, you know, this can go geographically. So, 
you need to make sure that there's no factors that might prevent the successful registration of your trademark. So that includes whether your mark is deemed to be too descriptive of the goods or services offered. If it uses a common name or it's geographical, the likelihood is you're not going to be able to trademark it. And you've also got to consider whether it's already registered um, as a trademark. So whether there's something in the class that's going to block yours. And again, just finding out whether if someone else has got a trademark, if someone else has already trademarked the thing in the class, you're not going to be able to trademark yours. So again, we run through all of these things to make sure that you can you can get everything you need for the brand and also that it's trademarkable and not already trademarked. Because if you, um, you know, so much as try and lodge a trademark where someone else is already trademarked, you're actually telling them that you're infringing their trademark. That can result in legal action, including fines and the requirement for you to change your business name anyway. So we do always recommend that you conduct a trademark search before using a new business name just to make sure it's not already trademarked. And then once all that's done and you've decided on your brand that meets all those criteria, then we can recommend that the IP is registered, again, in that separate IP entity, so not in the main franchising entity, keeping that asset separate. And then we can prepare a license, uh, an IP license that's entered into between the IP entity holding the trademark and the business name and the franchisor who's going to grant the franchise agreement. So we've got that level of separation and asset protection. So there we are. Digest that. That's very easy, isn't it? Just like breakfast. So the reality is with that, that there are complications and there are processes you can use. And certainly if you've got any thoughts about going overseas, register through that Madrid protocol that Helen mentioned just protected. I mean, at Franchise Simply, to give an example, we've had conversations with people in New Zealand, the United States, UK, Canada. So we protected ourselves in all those areas, including our domain names and so on. So there's a modest cost involved, but it's worth doing, um, I believe. Tell me, Helen, if you see a name pop up and there's someone copying your name, what's, what's the process there to overcome that? Do you know, it's funny, whenever I do podcasts like this, trademarks is always the interesting one where I get the, the outside of the box questions. So if someone's copying your name, then there's a lot of things to look at. But first of all, if you're the trademark owner, like you are and like I am with Rise Legal, it's a very simple process. Um, you need to engage a lawyer to serve what we call a cease and desist. So if somebody is infringing your trademark within your class of goods and services, then you can actually request them. Um, using the Trademarks Act, you can request them to stop or, as lawyers say, cease and desist. Um, because, you know, the, the whole point of the trademark was to stop anyone doing that. They're, in my experience, very, very successful. The problem is if you don't have a registered trademark, um, you really don't have that ability to do that. We're, we're looking at common law. We're looking at all sorts of, you know, misrepresentations and all sorts. And then you you do need to engage, um, you know, the next level, the, the IP attorney who would try and, you know, fight for the rights of an unregistered trademark, which is a lot harder because you've just not locked it away. No, let's hope we don't have to go down that tunnel, guys, because uh, yeah, it can be a bit complicated. Don't be discouraged by what you just heard. It is. It sounds very elaborate. The reality is it's a small item you can put to bed fairly quickly, but it is an important one and one that you should do early in the piece. But don't rush into it if you're not utterly convinced and you haven't had your branding reviewed by an expert 
don't rush into it if there's a possibility you might be changing the name because you can't edit these things. You have to go back and put a new application. So trademarks are obviously an important part of the picture. That's part of what you're selling when you're offering someone a franchise for a period of years or whatever. So I've heard people say, you know, a trademark is the secret to creating an unbeatable franchise. Is that over the top? How crucial are they to the big picture in franchising, Helen? Oh, they're, they're absolutely. I mean, the question that you just asked really highlights that you absolutely have to lock your brand away because that's what, like you said, people are paying for the use of the brand. That's the whole thing. You've built up a successful brand and people are paying to utilize it and the goodwill that it has in the industry rather than starting their own fresh new brand, which nobody knows about. So, you know, once the brand's determined, we do help our clients protect their intellectual property, like I said, through a trademark. And like you said, it's not um, the hardest thing to do in the world. It sounds complicated, but it is, you know, if you, if you go to the right place, you go to the right commercial lawyer who can do this for you, then, you know, it'll, it'll seem relatively simple. You won't, you won't know what's happening in the back end. They'll, like, we use a system called TM Head Start, which is, means that our clients get an answer within five business days. People don't like to wait. So we do the fast track system. So we get an answer from the examiner within five business days as to whether it's likely to be accepted for um, full registration. And they give you what they call a report. Now, that could be a clear results report. Or if they have any issues, again, they look at the Trademarks Act, they'll give you an adverse report. So either way, there's a there's you know ways in which you can progress. And it could be changing your brand. But I would much rather find it out right now on the you know that initial call with a lawyer right at the beginning before I've done all the marketing. I've spent years you know granting franchise agreements and basically pouring more and more money into the brand and advertising and marketing to then find out that it's not trademarkable i'd rather know from day dot don't you agree brian oh totally i I guess the people i speak to come disparate sizes of businesses and industries but there's probably probably less than 50 percent are actually trademarked at the time we talk to them so it it is important it's easy to overlook and so forth and of course there is the the logo as well as the name are relevant Mm -hmm. uh, so from that point of view it's important to follow that process. So let's say that I've, I've got a successful business. I want to franchise it. I've listened to you. Thank you very much for the advice on trademarking. So we've got that sorted. So once we've done that, what are the what's the absolute minimum of legal documents you need to be able to franchise? It's going to vary a bit from country to country, but generally these days around the world, a franchise agreement and a disclosure document are compulsory. So maybe you could run through and describe what they are based in Australia, but accepting people internationally, checking your own domain, but it's very probably quite similar. And I might mention that in places like Australia and so on, and then in, into, well, into America rather than Australia, it's different in state by state. So you need to make sure that you've got the appropriate uh, legislation covered. So I've buried your question there. The, the question was, what legal documents do you need to get started in a franchise, Helen? Yeah, no, that's fine. I got it. Um, so concentrating on Australia, obviously, I'm the uh, an English and an Australian lawyer, but I've been working in Australia for 16 years now. So I'm very um, Australianized. And the documents that you have to have here are uh, set out in the Code of Conduct. So the Franchising Code of Conduct tells any franchisor operating here in Australia what documents they have to have. And here they need to give a potential franchisee an information statement. So that's an official document explaining franchising, which has to be given at the earliest opportunity um, and before any other documents. A disclosure document document um, which tells the franchisee important information about the franchisor and the franchised business. A copy of the franchise agreement which is the key document and that says what the franchisee and the franchisor have agreed to do and not to do. 
it has the whole relationship in there essentially. Uh, key fact sheet, which helps the franchisee understand the disclosure document. Now, that's a relatively new one. So anyone who's been in the franchising game in Australia for many years and, and perhaps, you know, buried their head in the sun for the last couple of years may not be aware that there's a new document called a key fact sheet. And you also have to help your franchisees by giving them a copy of the then current franchising code of conduct. And all of that has to be given 14 days before they um, the franchisee signs the franchise agreement or makes a non-refundable payment. So... Just drilling into um, some of those documents, the um, the information statement is just a four-page guide that the franchisor has to provide to anyone interested in buying a franchise. So really, it should be part of your marketing system because it must be provided as soon as a potential franchisee shows a genuine interest in a franchise. Um, and then you must give this to your franchisees before you give them any other documents and not later than seven days after they express an interest. So like I say, if it's built into your sales funnel, then that should be going out. It's on the, uh, it's in a prescribed form on the website. And that just basically, it's like a stop, look and listen kind of thing, you know, explains the risks of franchising, the importance of doing research and due diligence and gives a, a useful list of questions that a person should ask if they're thinking about buying a franchise. Now, this isn't a piece of red tape. This is actually really useful for franchisors because this will wheedle out the time wasters, the people who weren't really understanding what they were about to start talking to you and wasting your time about. So it's quite a useful document and not a hard thing to just process. And then the disclosure pack, the one that has to go out 14 days before the franchise agreement and uh, non-refundable money are paid. A disclosure document, again, is in a prescribed form. There's a required format, which is in an extra one of the code of conduct. And that requires the franchisor to disclose certain things. It's basically like a questionnaire. It's almost like questions and answers and yes and no's. And, and really, you know, a franchise lawyer should be preparing that for you and with you. So it's one of those that we need to do with our clients because it, it asks for various, very specific information about the franchisor and its directors. It does ask things like, you know, certain types of legal proceedings that may be on foot against the franchisor or its directors and the details of current and former franchisees which is very important so you know treat them well on the way out as well because unless they request in writing that their details aren't to be disclosed you have to disclose them and one of the questions that the information statement suggests is that you know a new franchisee contacts those people so the cost so the biggest thing about the disclosure document really is disclosure as to the likely costs of running this franchise so they're all set out in a section in a, a really easy to read and complete table and and then just the details of the arrangements that apply at the end of the term so really again it's another you know this, this is our franchise all, all warts and all this is everything and we have to disclose it to you by law so again it's a great way to you know give them everything to make sure that they're they're set up for success as well so they can do the proper math before they get into it now that comes out with the franchise agreement um the franchise agreement it can't just be a draft you know a very bare draft ready to be amended it has to be in the in the format that it's going to be executed. So that goes out. That's the, the franchise agreement is the contract between the franchisor and the franchisee setting out each party's rights and responsibilities. And it's got, it basically goes through the timeline of the franchise relationship right from the start, things that may happen in the middle and things that happen at the end. So they're really quite well-drafted documents usually. There's very few franchise law firms in Australia that produce these documents. A lot of them are at the, the top end of town where I used to be sat, but there are some very good boutique 
franchise law firms dotted around. So make sure you find a, a good franchise lawyer because these documents need to be very well drafted because the franchisee needs to be able to read it and understand it before they'll sign it. And um, there's a reason then that they have, so they have those for 14 days and they do actually, after they sign the franchise agreement, have a, a further cooling off period. So they do have another 14 days after they've paid the money and signed the franchise agreement where they can get some or all of their money back. So what we make sure for our franchise clients that it's very clear what money um, our franchisors would keep should someone terminate in cooling off. And that has to just be a reasonable uh, for reasonable expenses that have been incurred by the franchisors. So they're not left out of pocket. Now, I've never touched word had anyone um, terminate during cooling off for my franchisor clients. So uh, usually people are very invested by that point. They're really keen. They've had the, maybe even had the training. You know, they've, sp- they've spent a lot of time with the franchisor. They've, you know, paid a lot of money. They've maybe gone and seen lawyers and, and really understand. So pulling off periods really, really not utilized very often. And another document that now goes out, like I mentioned, is that key fact sheet, which really is like a, a, a summary of the disclosure document. It highlights the information in the disclosure document. The purpose of it is to help franchisees understand the disclosure document. So not a hard document to draft. We usually leave that till the end and we, we do that uh, the last possible thing. So all of those things together with a, a copy of the code all form what we call the disclosure pack. Yeah, thank you for that. It sounds daunting, doesn't it? But the point is, that's why we retain experts who know their way through the franchising process like Helen, because once you've got that packed together, it then becomes just a repetitive exercise with a few bits and pieces of administration involved when you go to recruiting further franchisees. So bear in mind, it's a one-off exercise. There are the bits and pieces of, I suppose, I call uh, commercial knowledge would be helpful when you're going through this process. It's sort of common sense ways of doing things. That's the sort of thing we, people like ourselves can share with you to help you to understand it and execute these things in a commercial way. You, you don't want to make it intimidating for your prospective franchisee, for example. But it is, I would recommend, and I know that any lawyer would second this, that Anytime you're you're getting someone to go through a franchise agreement, make sure that they do seek advice from another lawyer, particularly one who knows franchising, because that's going to actually not so much protect them as protect you. Because if you have a dispute later, maybe years later, and they can stand up and say, but I never received legal advice, it's going to make life difficult for you. So that's just a little aside. So I suppose- that's That's a really good point, Brian. And one of the things you know that we do in our franchise agreements is build in a system for that. So there is an obligation on the franchise to go and seek financial business and legal advice and the certificates are built into the documents so they're there ready for the franchisees um, to go and get that that advice and I think you know it's best for the relationship I know we're not talking about the relationship today but it is really good for the relationship that you've suggested you know nurturing and suggested that they go and get some proper advice Exactly. Because look, this can all sound a bit formidable and sound a bit intimidating. So you want to make sure you're maintaining an empathetic, sort of friendly, open, trusting relationship between your prospective franchisee, because they're going to be business partners of yours for as long as they're in the system. And indeed, as Helen referred to earlier, they're going to be out there basically as testimonials to you for the rest of their lives. So it's important to nurture that. But talking more from a principle, really, of ethics, it's something that we should all respect in any event. So, uh, so. I suppose beside those essential documents, there's always others. It depends on the type of business, you know, whether you're in health or manufacturing, whatever, or whether you use retail premises. What are some of the other sort of documents that a franchise might need to really navigate through their their business world, their franchise life, Helen? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think one of the main ones would be a confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement, because mm-hmm. before you provide them with all these details of your secret source, as it were, before they sign the franchise agreement, which in itself will have confidentiality clauses in, before you tell them all about them, anything that's not in the public domain should be you know, protected by confidentiality agreement. So in the same way as if you were selling your business or having a chat with investors, you know, you, you'd get them to sign a confidentiality. So that would be one of the first things I again probably talk about that one way before we talk about setting up those um, prescribed documents that I discussed before that would probably come around the time of the structure and the trademarking you know get that get that confidentiality agreement ready it might be that you take a deed of restraint so in some places some law firms are doing separate deeds of restraints and indemnity to really protect the goodwill so that the directors of the franchisee companies can't go and compete and you know, use confidential information afterwards, you know, if they leave the system. We build that into our franchise agreement, but sometimes, like I say, it's separate. And there's a, a document that's not used as much as it used to be used, a deed of rep- uh, prior representations deed, which basically says that nothing that the franchisors told you um, during, you know, the marketing and the onboarding process um, overrides anything in the franchise agreement. So again, we build that into our franchise agreement. So I think, you know, if you don't want to overwhelm your franchisee with too many documents, probably look for a law firm that makes those documents a lot more palatable by you know basically including it all in one document and making it more simple for the franchisee because when you act for a franchisor like I, I wear two hats really I'm thinking well I've got to protect my franchisor here yeah they've got to comply with the legislation and you know we can do that but I also want to make sure that their franchisees you know aren't scared off by the documents so I want to make sure that they're really so I put my franchisee hat on and go you know if I was reviewing this from the other side what would I pick up so you'd be thinking about things like that you do have to send leasing information so if the franchisee is going to lease or occupy premises that needs to go with the pack any earnings information if you do provide earnings information then that needs to go as well basically it's full disclosure so everything the franchisee is going to be required to sign whether it's a software license or anything like that needs to go in that full pack again you need to need a, a really good franchise lawyer to collate all of that for you and take that headache away for you and I think I know a lawyer who can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose essentially looking at that then, from the point of view of looking at the retail, so when you're going into matters of real estate, so, you know, shopping centres, strip sites, whatever it might be, leasing an office, doesn't really matter, whatever premises, what are some of the key strategies you need to, I suppose, to keep in mind to sort of maximise the effectiveness of your leasing plans? Because uh, it's an area that's full of rabbit holes you can fall down and, and come drift, isn't it? It, absolutely. And it's one of those things like, you know, a lot of law firms, you have lawyers who deal with trademarking. You have lawyers who deal with leasing in a very separate team and then lawyers who deal with franchising in a separate team. I think it's really important to find those boutique firms that do all of it because, you know, the leasing side of it, if we're acting for a premises-based franchise and particularly some of our large national premises-based franchisors, they need to have a proper leasing strategy. I'm often quite surprised when I um, go and, you know, look at the structures of some of these franchises that they just haven't siloed their leases out into separate entities. 
So, um, you know, that's one of the things we need to look at when we look at the structure initially. Um, but we also need to think about how the franchisees are going to um, be involved in the lease process. So how much how much weight sits with the franchisor versus the franchisee and, and the unique advantages and, and disadvantages of each each one. So we usually work through with our clients to determine the best strategy. So, for example, deciding whether if, if there has to be um, leased premises, deciding whether the franchisor holds the lease or whether the franchisee holds the lease directly with the landlord obviously um, each one has different implications if the franchisor is the leaseholder then the franchisor has greater control over the location the maintenance of the premises you know what they look like ensuring brand consistency but they also on the converse take on more risk and responsibility because they've contracted directly with the landlord and agreed to pay the rent and to do the repairs and, and to pay the outgoings Versus the franchisee as the leaseholder, which provides the franchisee with flexibility and freedom, and it reduces the liability for the franchisor, but it can result in inconsistencies. Remember we were saying how important that brand is? It, this can result in inconsistencies in the premises maintenance, the fit out, and that can impact brand image. And also it could mean that you've not maintained control of that location. So, you know, they land, the franchisee has contracted with the landlord. So, you know, really, even if they leave the franchise system, unless you've got good protections in place, they could continue leasing those premises. We obviously make sure that that doesn't happen with various um, strategies that we employ in our franchise agreement and possibly in other documents, um, for example, a step-in deed if we need to step into those premises. Um, you can also decide whether, um, you know, if you hold the lease, if the franchisor holds the lease, then they need to grant the franchisee some form of occupancy because the franchisee is going to be the one in occupancy. So usually that's called a license to occupy and that gives the, license, the franchisee the, the right to use the premises but without holding those full lease rights and also um, being aware of the retail leasing laws in each state so um, whereas franchising is federal so it's the same across each state retail leasing isn't annoyingly enough there's different retail leasing legislation in each state so if you have plans to be national and you're looking for a franchise lawyer then you really need, need to find one who operates nationally like we do and um, because you know it could be that you expand into Victoria or you expand into South Australia and suddenly you need a, someone who understands the retail leasing legislation in that particular state. The minimum term rules can be different. There's different different rules on payment of legal fees and, and different disclosure requirements. So it's a real crucial part of a premises-based franchise that you have you know, a, a national firm helping you. Absolutely. It's a minefield and, um, and one that's often overlooked. A lot of documents in that space, from my experience, are fairly fairly mundane, to be honest, and they leave great openings you could drive a truck through. So you've got to be very careful. You're not the, um, the recipient of one of those because the landlords can be quite ruthless, let's face it. So one thing is you may have gathered, we've spoken about a lot of items here and franchise agreements over the years. The reason why it's important to have somebody who really knows their, their field, over the years, they a good franchise agreement will have impacted implemented or included different elements that people become aware of that are advantageous to have in there. So as, as Helen mentioned, things like your uh, non-disclosure information, reference to trademarks, training, operations manuals, those sorts of things. So my first franchise agreement I signed several decades ago now was less than 20 pages. Today, you generally 70 to 80 is a sort of range, I think. But you know, if you get one that's 30 or 40 pages, I would be suspicious that it's not covering 
covering enough of the ground you need to cover. So you do need to be conscious of that without any doubt. So, uh, And also, if you make reference to things like training programs and operations procedures manuals, make sure you actually provide them, implement them and apply them because otherwise, if the business relationship turns sour, certainly I've seen cases fairly recently even where judgment has been based on the fact that satisfactory training or support wasn't given, although it was implied. So um, that's something to be very conscious of. You just can't offer these things, talk about them and dismiss them. So uh, that's where a good a good lawyer will put you on track. So um, we've covered a lot of ground, Helen. Is there any, anything you'd like to add that I've overlooked? No, I mean, we, you and I could talk for hours about franchising. And I think yeah, yeah, there's yeah, a really good point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's a really good points about those franchise agreements. And we often do review franchise agreements for franchisees, obviously where we've not acted or, or not trying to act with a franchisor. So usually in that very, very large space where they've got in-house legal and, you know, using top tier firms, etc. And I, I'll say to my team, you know, the proof of the pudding is usually in what's not there rather than what's mm. there. What's there might look okay. And a lot of our a lot of our clients will say oh, I've read I've read the franchise agreement it looks fine to me it's like well yeah what you can see looks fine but what about all the stuff that you can't see that should be in there yes that's where the risks lie and like you say you know are they trying to pull some sort of wall over the eyes by just presenting you know a really nicely drafted reasonable 20 pager and it's actually not complied with the code because it didn't have all the other stuff in and it doesn't deal with this this and this which what happens when a contract doesn't deal with this this and this who has to deal with it the litigators have to go to court and appeal to a judge and say this is what it should have said this is what we intended it to say and that's when things get costly those are the lawyers that you know very very brilliant lawyers but that's when it can actually have a real dent on your business the, the analogy is really comparing it with a house if you haven't got decent foundations decent footings doesn't matter what you do up top you're going to get movement cracking you know collapse etc etc so i was twisting your arm earlier off uh, off camera or off off microphone i should say about making an offer to our mm-hmm. listeners today helen well i'd like to thank you very much for coming along thank you so much it's been really fascinating as you say you and i got a passion for franchising and i hope people listening that don't have one actually do develop a passion for franchising because it's a great vehicle so part of the way that helen's offered to help people on that journey would you like to just um, outline your your offer that you made, Helen? I will do. Yeah, thank you. And you were twisting my arm trying to squeeze an offer out of me. You're a great salesman. Um, so yeah, that legal strategy call that I mentioned at the beginning. So remember I said that the first thing we do with anyone wanting to franchise is to get them get them into a session, a legal strategy session to run through all the different facets and then prepare a roadmap. So it's a really useful um, guide so that you know where you're going. Now, we, we normally sell those. They're available to purchase through the website. I believe they're about $4.95. So um, I've offered anyone who phones up to the firm to Rise Legal and mentions this podcast that we will we'll give them um, one of those sessions for free. Fantastic. Great value. There we are. So it's been worth your while hanging in. I hope you've all enjoyed it. It's, it's been delightful talking to Helen. I hope you've enjoyed hearing her, her wisdom as well. So uh, indebted to the listeners for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, to Helen as well, as I say. So what I'd like to do now is to close and say, looking forward to speaking to you all again soon. And uh, if you've got any queries ever, any questions, get in touch with me. You'll find me Googling or whatever and uh, go from there. So thanks very much again. I'll say goodbye. And Helen, if you'd like to tip your hat and say cheerio. (laughs) Bye. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Bye, everybody. 